Thank you for tuning in to Where We Grow From Here. I'm Matthew Walker, uh, Managing Director at S2G Ventures and your host for this episode. Where We Grow From Here is produced by S2G Ventures and is our opportunity to share with you stories, trends, and insights from across the food system. In today's episode, we're going to talk about food waste. And with us today, we have Aiden Moat, CEO and co-founder of Hazel Technologies. Welcome, Aiden. Thank you for joining hey. us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, uh, we are, unfortunately, we are doing this podcast during the COVID-19 pandemic. And with respect to the food system specifically, we've seen quite a lot of significant changes here. One of the more shocking things we've seen with respect to food is images of entire fields of crops being allowed to rot in the field, uh, videos of fresh milk being poured down the drain, uh, many other images of food produced that is wasted. And this is obviously terrible to see, but it does highlight the issue of food waste in the supply chain. And I think the pandemic has made us all take a closer look at the importance of the food supply chain and, and how a preference for efficiency over resilience has led to a system that is somewhat brittle, uh, ill-equipped to adapt to rapid or significant change. And you know, today, I'd like us to explore how big of a problem we have with food waste, uh, to talk a little bit about how we can combat it and make the food system more efficient, and also the adjacent benefits that efficiency will provide for the environment and for the economy. But first, Aiden, let's talk a little bit about you. I'd love to give the audience a chance to hear a bit about your background and uh, how you came to be a founder of Hazel. Sure, sure. So uh, my journey to, uh, to the table, so to speak, uh, with respect to fighting the good fight on food waste is a little bit uh, different. My, uh, my background is chemistry. Um, I did my PhD at Northwestern. Uh, and wrap that up in 2016. Uh, so we started Hazel in 2015. Uh, several of us from from different parts of the university. Uh, for me, you know, my my PhD focus wasn't in agriculture, but it was on sustainability's uh, sustainability chemistry. Um, I was making catalysts to better transform renewable feedstocks into platform chemicals, you know, get us off of uh, petroleum dependencies, things like that. Um, and in doing so, became a fellow for a group called the Institute for Sustainability and Energy at Northwestern, Eisen. So there, uh, I was put into sort of a broader spectrum of challenges in sustainability in world systems um, and kind of came up with a central thesis, which is if you look at uh, most world systems, transportation, energy, medicine, commerce, et cetera, uh, you'll see that there's been a pretty substantial technological revolution in the course of the last 30 years or so that has dramatically changed the standard of business and, and really disrupted all of the markets uh, from what they were in the, the latter half of the 20th century. But if you look at agriculture, which is the largest industry on the planet and the only industry that's guaranteed to touch every person every day of their lives, um, we, we actually really haven't had that latter stage disruption. Um, I would actually argue that we're sort of on the tail end of the last agricultural revolution, which occurred really in the, the very beginning of the 20th century and, and is really sort of the Haber-Bosch process becoming uh, commercialized. It's the process that we use to um, convert nitrogen into ammonia. It allows us to make nitrogen-enriched fertilizer. And it's such a powerful process that it's estimated that one out of every two people on the planet that is alive today is alive only because of that single chemical process. Uh, so I got really, really interested in understanding how chemistry impacts agriculture. I think it's a central input. And in particular, uh, this is the time when when the awareness around food waste really started coming to the forefront in 2015. Um, we've been overproducing for a very long time. You know, Hopper and Bosch let us make lots and lots of crop and, and lots and lots of animal feed. 
Um, and as a result, we've been producing so much that we're wasting 30 or 40% of everything we produce every year. And in an era where we get more and more concerned over the impact of overproduction and waste on climate change uh, and on the uneven distribution of, of calories worldwide, uh, creating food deserts and creating hunger pockets, uh, I think that the new frontier of agricultural revolution is figuring out how to fix our supply chain uh, to be able to ensure that we're able to distribute everything that we produce each year. I think this is the new role that chemistry can take. So that was how I came to it. Um, I then joined an entrepreneurial accelerator, uh, which is actually where we met the other co-founders, uh, myself and Adam Pressler, who was also a PhD chemist out of the Northwestern program. Uh, we came up with the idea of using uh, cheap, earth-abundant, eco-friendly, non-toxic materials to control small mo molecule signaling pathways in, in perishable food. Um, we liked that idea a lot, and so we decided to incorporate a company around it, uh, put everything together in March of 2015. And uh, we've been growing ever since. So that's uh, that's sort of the origin story of, of how I got into Hazel. We could dig into what Hazel does specifically and the work in, that you and the team are doing. But first, I think you mentioned as much as 40% of the supply chain goes to waste in the food system. Can you help quantify for us the size of this problem and how you think about its overall impact? Yeah, you know, I would argue, I think that actually food waste is probably the single biggest solvable contributor to greenhouse gas emissions and, and climate change. Just to, to come up with the concept of scale before I start rattling off numbers, if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases on the planet, uh, just behind the U.S. and China. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. So, uh, you know, what you said is correct. Uh, every year we waste about a third of all the food that we produce globally. Uh, it's about a $2 trillion problem worldwide. Uh, we estimate in the United States that uh, distribution waste counts for about $86 billion of wasted food each year. Um, but of course, you know, you think about wasted food, but it's not just calories and it's not just dollars. It's also resources, you know, resource expenditure and waste. And so that figure also means we waste about 24% of our total water supply, about 6% of our annual energy budget. We burn in excess 300 million gallons of gasoline each year, moving produce and, and other foodstuffs that will never be eaten. Uh, and we inject about 220 million tons of excess CO2 equivalents into the atmosphere each year from the United States alone, just from food waste. Uh, so it's a pretty tremendous problem in terms of resource intensivity, uh, climate change factors. Uh, and then, of course, there's all of the social, uh, economic, and, and geographic uh, contributions to it as well. Certainly not an insignificant problem, even before um, all of these images we've seen in the pandemic. Um, that, that $90 billion figure, that, that is, um, I read somewhere that that is e equivalent to the amount that the U.S. federal government spends on education in a year. So there's, yeah, there's a lot that we can do <laughs> with, uh, with that amount of waste. Yeah. And so but what is the market doing today to combat um, waste? I mean, what, what are... How are we protecting freshness and how are we managing shelf life today in the market? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a really great question. Uh, I, and I would say it's sort of the punchline on the question is, I think our biggest enemy tends to be status quo. Uh, so, you know, just keep that in mind as I sort of go through a, a short list of, of various things. And another thing to remember is food is really a global phenomenon. Uh, you know, even here in North America, even here in the United States, our growing season, for example, to talk about crop cycles, is really only about half the year. 
you know, we grow extensively uh, from about May till about uh, October, November. Uh, and that means that as a result, we sort of partner a lot of times with our longitudinal opposite. Uh, well, I, I guess I should say latitudinal opposite, the other side of the equator, which is South America. So we get the other half of our production typically from countries like Peru and Chile and Colombia that are geographically close, but are on the other side of the seasons um, with respect to uh, planetary geography. So that means that intrinsically, this is an international question. Intrinsically, it's a global issue. And the U.S. has a very different resource setting uh, than other countries do. And so we have to think about not only what is it, what are the resources that we're deploying here in this heavily industrialized nation uh, to protect our food supply, but also how do those resources translate into different resource settings, areas where human capital is very different than, say, infrastructural capital, uh, and so forth and so on. So you have to think of it from different perspectives. In the, in the U.S., the traditional perspective tends to be one that relies very heavily on a very expensive infrastructure that we've created over the better part of the last century, end-to-end uh, -end cold chain, for example, uh, lots of HVAC power going into cycling air systems over and over again, um, filtration systems that pull organic compounds out of the atmosphere that are detrimental towards food health. Um, and a, a fairly heavily packaged society. I mean, we're not, we don't have as much packaging inherent to our, our food as uh, Japan does, for example, but Japan also doesn't produce food on the same scale that the U.S. does because it's a very big population difference. So I would argue that from a packaging output perspective, the U.S. is, is one of the largest uh, in the world. And so that's sort of the perspective that we take. Um, you see a lot of industrial solutions that attempt to uh, better control broad atmospheres. You're thinking about how do we improve warehouse structure? How do we uh, introduce uh, ozonating agents or, or antimicrobial agents into the general atmosphere of these big storage warehouses and production facilities? A lot of line type systems and wash type systems, you know, those are used predominantly in very specific crop types that are robust enough to handle those types of processing. Um, but generally, you know, we think of things in terms of a lot of these uh, sort of just post farm gate uh, technologies that sort of shape the way these logistical systems work. I would argue that that's sort of the U.S. version of it. I would argue that there's a lot of other areas uh, in the world that are very, very different because the resource settings are very different. So, for example, you're not going to see that kind of industrialization in the packing sheds in Honduras or in the jungles of, of the Dominican Republic. Um, and those are, you know, major crop producers as well. So the conversation starts to get a little complicated there, and I'll, I'll stop there. But I think those are some conventional solutions that are very typical uh, in an industrialized setting. Interesting you point out, you know, you have to think about each specific supply chain and each specific geography a little differently. I think a lot of people would think that in the U.S. supply chain, in the U.S. coal chain, we're, we're very efficient. Um, and, you know, you may have greater waste issues in places where you don't have as, as defined of a cold chain or you have longer supply chains. But in the U.S., we may have um, fairly optimized our system. Would you agree with that? And is there, is there I noticed you said earlier, solvable contributor. Uh, and so are there solutions that work in the U.S. market or is this really an emerging markets problem? That's a fascinating question. So. <laughs> I think you'd be tempted to think that we, by virtue of the fact that we've spent a lot of money to become very uh, efficient, that therefore probably our efficiency is higher than that of other countries. The FAO says different. Uh, the FAO says that, you know, you, you set up your food supply systems based off of geography and population density, right? So the U.S. has a large population, but it also has an enormous country uh, to disperse food over. 
which means that by definition, we have to centralize our food production systems a little more efficiently in order to achieve the same kind of food distribution system that we would have in a much geographically smaller nation. So um, what the FAO data says all over the world is that actually waste percentages tend to remain fairly constant country to country, or, or at least region to region. I won't say country to country, but region to region. But where those waste percentages occur varies dramatically. Um, and then, of course, you have this problem of data reporting. So, for example, um, we've always argued in the United States uh, that, hey, you know, we've got all this great pre-farm gate sorting technology. That means that we're able to mitigate pre-farm gate losses. And therefore, a lot of the losses that we see are actually during this long distribution chain that has to go over all this geographic distance. Well, there was a study that came out last year uh, from Santa Clara University that indicated that the rate of pre-farm gate losses is being dramatically underestimated uh, at a wide variety of California producers. And in some cases can be as much as three times what we've actually been predicting. So the way in which you measure these things and the impact that it has also has a lot of impact on the data that we understand. Um, but all of that being said, I think that it's true that if you go to practically any region, you still see about the same margin of distribution waste. No matter how those supply chains are set up, you still typically see somewhere between 10 and 20% waste in the distribution system, which argues that there's definitely an opportunity uh, in all of those areas to figure out a way to make those systems more efficient. And, and that's kind of where I think the Hazel perspective comes from is um, there's definitely still some unifying inefficiencies in the supply chains, whether you're talking about an industrialized system or a non-industrialized system. Uh, and if you have a solution that can target all of those environments, then you're really doing the best thing for, for reducing food waste. Growth. And so enter new technologies like Hazel. So you see this problem um, and you believe you have a solution. Can you tell us why you saw this as something that you and your, your team could fix and what it is specifically that Hazel does? Um, to reduce food waste in the system? For sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you two separate answers. I'll give you sort of a broad perspective uh, on how we approach the problem, and then I'll talk a little bit more specifically about the type of technology that we're using. Um, but for us, we, we identified that, I mean, this is going to sound very simplistic, but I think this is a true statement. We have these, these built-in factors in the supply chains, and those factors are traditionally viewed as loss drivers. So distance, time, uh, packaging environments, packaging requirements, and so forth and so on, uh, everything's got to come shipped in something, right? And so when we looked at it, we said, well, look, um, you really have two options when you're, when you're trying to address inefficiencies in the supply chain. You can either uh, try to change the supply chain. You can tell somebody that they have to install a new piece of equipment, do a new kind of packing or whatever it is. Um, and those things have worked in very specific SKUs, but you won't find any unifying concepts in those types of technologies. They don't work for everything, uh, either on a unit economic basis or a technological efficacy basis, or even just a pure operational efficiency basis. The other thing you can do, and this is sort of where how we look at it is, well, look, you've already got all of these environments where the food is going to stay. It's going to be traveling in some kind of packaging. It's going to be put into some kind of fairly uniform shipping environments, whether it's a reefer or a truck or a box or what have you, what if you could functionalize that environment? What if you could perform shelf life enhancement in that storage and transit process that looks basically the same no matter what country you're in and no matter what crop you're shipping? That was kind of the, the, you know, the, the oversimplification that we started the company with saying is, is there a way that we can figure out how to solve that problem? And, and for us, the answer comes down to biochemistry. You can be very clever uh, with the way that you can modify the atmospheres uh, using a brand new field of materials chemistry that allows us to 
uh, intercalate useful materials into higher order structures, like for example, packaging materials, plastics, papers, woods, et cetera, um, then what you can do is start to introduce biochemistry into this formerly unfunctionalized atmosphere and use it to actually drive uh, better shelf life and higher quality uh, without having to change any parameter whatsoever of the shipping system as it's already set up. So that's the general theory. Um, and an example of how we specifically execute on that is uh, one of our flagship products is, is something that we call a, an inbox sachet. It's a little thing that looks like a sugar packet. Uh, it goes into a master box of produce that weighs up to about 50, 60 pounds. So very small footprint item uh, with a pretty large impact correspondingly. Um, that sachet travels with that box through the entirety of its life cycle. So it gets put in at packing, it moves through the supply chain, it moves to the distribution center, all the way to the retail shelf. Um, and what it does is slowly uh, time release a vapor phase active ingredient into the storage atmosphere of that packed produce box. Uh, that atmospheric agent then allows us to control the metabolic rate of the produce during the storage and transit processes regulate the metabolism, reduce the impact of travel stress, uh, enhance shelf life up to threefold, uh, and even provide additional shelf life and quality enhancement after the retail shelf of the consumer because we've taken such strong control of that biology. Now you've got a solution that requires no CapEx, it requires no special training, uh, it's not a contact system, so you have no concerns about residue or uh, chemical, new chemicals getting into the food supply, things of that nature. Uh, but simply by changing the storage atmosphere that already exists, we've added a new layer to the tech stack, and that's what enables us to provide uh, outrageously powerful functionality uh, in a very, very small pack. If I'm a consumer of this, got a, um, some melon or an apple or whatever it may be, the product that I'm eating is not coated in anything. It, it's not modified in any way by your atmospheric. This is the same thing that I would get at the farm gate. Um, it's just been put into stasis, if you will, for, uh, for some portion of the supply chain. Yeah, precisely. I mean, a, a very simple way of thinking about it is, um, you know, one of the principal agents that triggers produce aging is ethylene, right? So ethylene is a gas, you know, it's a C2 molecule, it's a compound. Um, that ethylene is naturally produced, uh, so it's emitted uh, into the atmosphere by the produce itself, and then it triggers additional biological responses. But it's not like your produce is coated in ethylene. You just have some amount of ethylene in the atmosphere around the produce. And the, the produce, being a biological organism, responds to it the same way that it responds to oxygen levels because it's breathing or water levels because it's uh, transpiring. So all we're able to do is modify the way that that produce uh, observes that atmosphere. We modify the way that it observes that ethylene. And by doing so, then we can control those biological processes like respiration and transpiration that have massive impact on the shelf life of that produce over time. So it's all atmospheric. It's, it's, it's completely non-contact. It's a drop-in solution as well. So, so this works with the existing supply chain, which is obviously something that's very attractive. How, how is the industry today absorbing this new technology? I mean, from your perspective, who are the key players and what are they doing? What should they be doing with respect to these new technologies and, and to help combat uh, and mitigate food waste in the supply chain? Well, I think we have a pretty unique position uh, relative to practically all existing shelf life extension technologies, which generally require you know, some kind of reshaping of the supply chain. You know, even if you're going to switch from corrugated to, to RPC, you have to, you have to make some changes in your operations. 
But in this case, you can apply a Hazel product to RPC the same as you can apply it to corrugated. Um, so what we're seeing is we, we see sort of a unification happening with a lot of different types of farmers that traditionally would never be serviced by the same company. We've got, you know, greenskin avocado growers in the Dominican Republic. We've got uh, kiwi fruit growers in New Zealand. We've got cherry growers in the Pacific Northwest. And we've got melon growers in California, all using the same product in a very similar way, despite the very significant differences in those types of packing operations and growing operations. So there's, you start to see this sort of unification where um, a lot of times a, a post-harvest company or an extension company, they'll, they'll sort of offer a suite of solutions for one type of crop because that's the industry they're comfortable with. Instead, we're bringing a lot of those parts of the industry together. And then it goes even further than that because this is something where it's simple enough and it's flexible enough and it addresses enough different kinds of supply chains that even the, the retailers have recognized that there's an advantage to this approach. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a producer, you're worried about you know, one or one to maybe five types of SKUs. Um, you're very technological. You understand a lot of these inputs. Uh, you put a lot of effort into solidifying those supply chains. If you're a retailer, you worry about hundreds of SKUs every year coming from dozens of different geographies. So you're talking about just hundreds and hundreds of individual supply chains each of which is going to require its own flavor of tweaking and its own kind of unification. Um, but if you look at a company like Hazel that's already working with half of your major suppliers across 10 of your different SKUs in 100 of your different supply chains, you start to think, oh, hey, what if I just help them and move this into all of my supply chain systems? And that's what we're seeing the interest from the retail side being. So I think for the first time, um, we've been able to successfully bring together a solution that the suppliers have already begun to adopt, the, the growers and packers are already adopting autonomously with a type of solution that the retailers are becoming interested in and have figured out ways to leverage the enhanced quality and the enhanced brand visibility uh, to marry together sort of the horses and the cart of the supply chain. Um, and so that's something that we're very excited about. And, and what's the impact of this today? Obviously, you know, it's, it's still a scaling technology and a scaling business, but if you think about the environmental and economic impacts that you generate or you'll generate this year, what is the impact to the environment of a system that is using Hazel relative to one that wouldn't be? So we estimate, and there's a number of different uh, analytical and, and post-harvest mechanisms that we look at that through. In general, you know, we typically have an average of about a 40% waste reduction uh, in any particular skew that we apply uh, hazel into it. And that, you know, that spans a broad range because a lot of different crops, a lot of different programs, you know, they have varying levels of waste. But it's, I think it's fairly consistent to say that in general, we reduce spoilage waste by about 40%. Um, the net impact of that is pretty overwhelming. Um, and you have to remember that because we're doing these sort of atmospheric type treatments, we don't have to do things like worry about treating fruits on an individual level. We're, we're not restrained by any particular sorting machine or any particular wash machine throughput. We're treating bulk produce uh, in its actual storage environment. So as a result, even though this is only about the, the we're only about five and a half years through the company's life cycle, um, I think we're having pretty big impact. Uh, this year, we're, we're scheduled to treat, uh, we're actually very much on track to treat about 3 billion pounds of produce. Um, based off of you know, what we see analytically and what we help our customers measure, we estimate that that's going to save about 250 million pounds of produce from going bad. Uh, and the net GHG impact is uh, that we save about 200,000 metric tons of CO2 equivalents uh, from going into the atmosphere by, by preventing that food waste. 
So, you know, on the one hand, agriculture is an enormous industry. Uh, and of course, we, we want to scale everything by about 100x to really meet our, meet our targets. But on the other hand, I would argue that even for a small startup, um, we're already having a pretty colossal impact uh, on the uh, on food waste in the world. A few billion pounds and just getting started. That is, uh, <laughs> that's great to hear. Um, I guess just last question, um, because I know we're running out of time. Just any of your thoughts on the, your vision for the fresh supply chain of the future? Is it the same as it is today, but with Hazel? Are there other changes that people need to be thinking about making? Just any, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I, I think one of the biggest challenges in the supply chain is, is fragmentation. And it's not just fragmentation of geography or of uh, food type. It's also fragmentation of the technology provider. Uh, it, it's such a huge market that so often I think what happens is uh, you, you develop a system, whether it's a machine or whether it's a, you know just an independent technology or whatever it is, and that addresses one portion of the market. And that's good for a business. I mean, that needs to happen. But in terms of really changing the paradigm of how the supply chain operates, uh, I don't think that quite cuts it. And so at Hazel, we like to think about what, what I call the holistic supply chain, which is an, a, a situation where a technology provider should be able to touch every single market segment of the entire supply chain with technologies that positively impact the quality uh, and the sustainability of that supply chain. So we've got a product portfolio already that connects end-to-end -end, um, the farmers. We've got pre-farm gate technology. Uh, the suppliers, the 3PLs, the carrier companies, we've got uh, IoT data type technologies, we've got uh, shelf life extension technologies. We're able to bring the distributors and the retailers into that conversation. So you've got the suppliers and the retailers using the same shelf life extension technologies end to end in their supply chains. Um, and in the long run, we even intend to bring uh, consumer focused products into the market as well, because our technology is so modular and so powerful that it can be used at home by the average consumer. And I think when you get to that world where Hazel is the one company that has a technology for every need across the supply chain, we can start to standardize uh, the supply chain where it used to be fragmented and fractured, and we can start to guarantee uniform uh, quality and, and very controlled parameters across all of these different SKUs. That's when you're going to have the efficiency that you need to really reduce food waste to zero. Uh, and so that's, that's the, the future that we envision uh, with Hazel being the, the 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 protecting agent behind the entirety of the holistic supply chain. That is a grand and uh, beautiful vision. Um, I, th I think we're about out of time. Thank you, Aiden, for joining us today. What you're doing is incredible and is already extremely impactful. And we are so happy to be along for the ride with you. Uh, and thank you, all of you listeners, for taking the time to listen to Where We Grow From Here. Be sure to subscribe to the Where We Grow From Here podcast and tune in for future podcast episodes. Thank you and have a great day.